All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Luke 22. Luke 22, looking at verses 14 through 20 this evening, Christ's desire toward us. Every month at Legacy Baptist Church, we engage in an activity which we call communion. It's also regularly called the Lord's Supper. It's intended to be a very special time in the regular function of the church, a hallowed time. It's not about our righteousness, it's not about our worth, it's not about our worthiness, but rather Christ's righteousness, Christ's worth, Christ's worthiness. It's not about you, but it is about us. It's about us as a body fellowshipping together around the table of our Lord in unity, in communion, if you will, with one another and with our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, ironically and sadly, the doctrine surrounding communion is one of the most disagreed upon in the church. I call this ironic because the whole object, as we just mentioned, of the observance is unity. And for there to be disunity over the nature of an object of unity is ironic, but it is also very sorrowful. There's an unfortunate reality even in our circles that we Christians tend to wear Disunity is a mark of pride under the banner of separation. Now, when we talk about separation from the world, that's something that we are called to do. When we talk about separation within the church, it's something we are called to do under different circumstances. We live distinct from the world. We don't separate ourselves from interaction with the world, from uh, talking and, and, and uh, interacting with the world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, or else we must come out of the world, and then, of course, we can't win the world. Within the church, it's slightly different. As a fellowship of believers, we separate from those who are walking outside of sound doctrine, and that's generally where, if we can call it that, the church finds its, its mark of pride in separation and disunity. However, separation is not intended to be a mark of pride in the church. The fact that we separate from those uh, who are walking contrary to sound doctrine is an important thing and a needful thing, but it is not a proud thing. Separation means there's a problem in the church. Separation is a call to restore the truth to its proper place in the church. It's not an abandonment of the offender. To this degree, separation ought to be mourned, not rejoiced. Separation is often necessary, but that doesn't make it good. So what we're going to do today is walk through these verses where Jesus has his last supper with his disciples, and we're going to consider not just the elements of what is happening, but we're going to consider all of these other views. I've never quite done a Lord's Supper message like this. Normally, I defend a little bit about, uh, well, we, we teach what Lord's Supper is, and then I, I uh, talk about what our church does and uh, why we do it the way we do it and why we see it the way we see it, and we'll talk about some of those things in part. But I also am going to introduce you this evening to the other major views on communion and why it is, why they believe what they believe, and why it is we don't agree with them. And I hope that in doing so, you'll find that, as with everything at Legacy Baptist Church, we do what we do for a reason. 
It is thought out. There is purpose behind it. We don't just take tradition and do what tradition says, but we have reasons, and we believe those reasons are biblically sound. We begin in verse 14 of Luke 22, and the Bible tells us this, reading through verse 16. And when the hour was come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him, and he said unto them, With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now remember our context from last week. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He has not gotten the money yet. He has not told them. He hasn't gone out to betray Jesus yet. But he has already spoken with the chief priests and scribes about betraying Jesus. It's already been agreed upon. Jesus has then asked Peter and John to go prepare the Passover for them. They go, they get the upper room, they prepare the Passover for the twelve along with Jesus. They did so and now they are sitting down eating the Passover together. At some point in the meal, the Bible tells us Jesus expresses a tremendous desire that he has to eat this Passover with him before he suffers. They don't really understand the fullness of Jesus' meaning yet, but they should understand something. They should understand that Jesus desired to fellowship with them deeply. This was one of the things that Jesus wanted to do before his death. He wanted to eat the Passover with them one last time. That Jesus anticipated that this would be the last time for quite some time that he would be able to do this thing with them should have been a, a, a clue to them as to what was going to happen next. In fact, he tells them that the next time he would eat this with them would be in the kingdom of God. It's important for us, however, to slow down and to understand Jesus' statement here, just how strong it is. The word translated desire in our New Testament here, as it's translated, uh, is a word used throughout the New Testament, and it's generally used to speak of lust. Indeed, the word is used 38 times in the New Testament. 34 of those 38 times, it speaks of the negative idea of lust. As with many things uh, in life, uh, lust is not inherently a negative thing. It depends on the object of that lust and uh, whether or not you have a right to it. So, uh, as we've talked about before with jealousy, jealousy is not inherently a bad thing if the thing that you're jealous over is a thing that you have the right to. The Bible says God is jealous over us, and it's right and it's good for Him to be jealous over us because we are His as, as believers. He has the right to us, and so He's jealous over us. He does not want us wandering away from Him because we belong to Him. And so there's that righteous jealousy. It can be the same with righteous lust, a desire unto something that is right, a desire, a longing for that which is yours, which is is your right to have, as opposed to uh, negative lust, which is longing or desiring something that is not your right to have, whether in time or or by money or by by possession or whatever the case may be. So there are 34 of the 38 times it's used negatively, but there are four times in our Bible where the word is used positively in the New Testament where it reflects a deep desire and a true compulsion of the will toward that which is right. Of course, we have it in our passage here in Luke 22. We also see it in Philippians 1.23, where Paul says this, For I am in a strait betwixt two, 
having a desire, there's that word, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Paul's talking about his desire to be with Christ and his love for them and knowing that he needs to be here with them to help them, but his true lust, his true longing, his true desire to be with Christ. That's right and that's good. And that's, that's a desire which he's allowing God to fulfill in his time. And as he allows God to fulfill it in his time, it's Paul's right to desire to be with Christ. We also see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. They long to be among the brethren. They long to comfort their brethren. This, again, is right and good and fine and within the context of those things which are right for them to have. And then we also see it in Matthew chapter 3, excuse me, 13, verse 17. Jesus says, For verily I say unto you, that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. So these righteous men of years gone by have lusted after, have desired to see and to hear the days that these men had seen and heard but they were not able to uh, because of time. It's not that their desire was wrong, but they longed for something which was outside of, of, of their particular time. Now, with these in mind, we understand then the weight behind this word, the passion that undergirds this word, the depth of Jesus' love and longing for fellowship with his disciples. Jesus longed to eat with them. Well, why did it matter so much, Pastor? Why eating? Why fellowship? Certainly, Passover was a very uh, special meal, but meals in and of themselves are important in Hebrew culture. In many cultures around the world, to sit down and to eat a meal with someone was to honor them. It was to fellowship with them. It was an intimate time. You did not just sit down and eat with anybody, but you ate with those uh, with whom you, you loved, that you cared about, or that you wanted to get to know. It was an extension. You invite them into your home. You invite them into your life. You invite them to your table. And then to add on top of that, the Passover flavor, the reality of the importance of this meal as a type of Jesus Christ, as a type of what he was about to do, and it becomes all the more important. It was a desire for a bond. But it was an invitation this evening, not just to fellowship, but more so to continued fellowship. And this is another reason why Jesus wanted to, to partake to invite them into deeper fellowship together. So we find in verses 17 to 20, Jesus says this, or the Bible says this, excuse me, and he took the cup and gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave unto them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. We call what takes place here the Lord's Supper. Jesus took two elements. The Bible says he took bread, which would have been unleavened, as is the character of, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. And he took a cup filled with what the Bible calls the fruit of the vine, that would be uh, grapes and grape juice. Um, there is none of the Gospels actually explicitly say that it was wine, although most likely it was. Um, however, what we see in each Gospel is the fruit of the vine. So grape juice, whether fermented or unfermented, the Bible does not say uh, it 
just says the fruit of the vine. And Jesus likens these two elements to elements of his sacrifice, saying that the bread symbolized his broken body, not just his body, but his broken body, and that the cup symbolizes the New Testament or the new covenant in his blood, not just his blood, but the new covenant in his blood. And Jesus gives the purpose for this observance. He says, this do in remembrance of me. Now we read here of an event which we now call the Lord's Supper, or we now call communion. And this is something that the Church of God has been commanded to regularly perform. We don't learn that explicitly from this passage or from the Gospels, but we learn this more specifically from 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is rebuking the church for the wrong manner in which they were partaking of this observance together. They were coming together and they were bringing a feast. They were making it into an, a feast, but it was a gluttonous feast. It was a selfish feast. If people were poor and they couldn't afford to bring food, they were, they were held out of the feast. It was not a time of unity. It was not a time of rejoicing. It was not a time of remembrance. It was not about these things that we'll talk about in a little while uh, that, that form the very basis for what communion is. Instead, it was more or less just a debauched, drunken, gluttonous feast. It was wrong in every account, and because of that, Paul was writing to rebuke them. And he gives them a very similar um, statement as he teaches on the Lord's table uh, that we see in Luke. He says this in beginning of verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Notice here we find the same elements commanded to be observed regularly in the church that we saw in Luke 22. To eat the bread in remembrance of Jesus' body which was broken for us and to drink the cup, the fruit of the vine, in remembrance of the new covenant which is in his blood. And then Paul says that it exists to show. That word meaning to announce, to declare, to proclaim, to demonstrate the Lord's death till he come. From these passages, as we compare the Gospels and the teaching on the Lord's table with the Gospels, with 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul's teaching, these are the only areas in the Bible that teach on the Lord's table. From comparing these, we draw out four primary purposes of communion, four primary purposes of the Lord's table. If we stick to the Bible... If we stick to what's being taught, these are the four primary purposes that we find. Number one, we find that it is a memorial. Jesus said, after the bread, after the cup, this do in remembrance of me. We do it to remember our Lord. We do it to remember His broken body. We do it to remember the new covenant in His blood. It's an explicit purpose given in the text. Second, it is fellowship. Communion between us as a body 
and with our Lord. The great desire with which Jesus desired to eat this meal reflects the depth of the desire that our Lord has to fellowship with his people and the depth of the desire that the Lord has that his people would be unified, that we would come together around a table and remember our Lord, that we would find unity in our Lord, in our salvation, that in this this act that Jesus Christ did on the cross, there would be unity among the brethren. Third, it is anticipation. Jesus told them that he would not again partake of the fruit of the vine until all was fulfilled in the kingdom of God. This means that the observance is not just looking back on what Jesus has done, but it is anticipatory. It is looking forward to that which Jesus Christ will do when he sits down with us in the kingdom and we eat together uh, in the kingdom. And we, we, we fellowship with him in the kingdom. We fellowship today as a body in anticipation of fellowshipping tomorrow in the, in, in the world to come, in the kingdom of God, with our Lord. We could talk a little bit more about that and talk about how we know it will be in the millennial kingdom. Uh, however, I think it's a little bit beyond the scope of our time today. Suffice it to say, we will meet our Lord together in the kingdom and we will fellowship with him. And we anticipate that today through communion. And then fourth, as we consider 1 Corinthians 11, it is a proclamation that as we partake as a body together, we testify to those who are not in the body of a communion with one another and with our Lord that they simply do not have. We demonstrate the Lord's death. We proclaim His death. We announce His death till He come. Now to this point, we've presented what we believe. We've drawn out the principles of Scripture as they are taught, and we have set them out in, in a manner that hopefully is understandable. But there are several other views among other churches and denominations about communion, about what it is, about its importance. And I'll explain these briefly. I'd like to explain them to you today, give you the passage of Scripture that they use to inform what they believe, uh, to the extent that they use Scripture to inform what they believe. And then we'll talk about why we disagree. The first of the views on communion, the one that is farthest from us, is what we call transubstantiation. This is generally found in the Roman Catholic Church, transubstantiation. This view, the view of Rome, is that the bread in which the church partakes retains its exterior form of bread and the cup, retains its exterior form of wine in the Catholic Church, but the invisible substance of the bread and the wine transforms into the literal body of Jesus. It has the, to, to stick to the bread analogy for a moment, it has the attributes of bread. It feels like bread, it smells like bread, but it is in fact human flesh. It is in fact Jesus' flesh. The bread looks, feels, smells, tastes like bread, but it is really, genuinely, the flesh of Jesus himself. And everyone, whether they believe or not, who partakes in the ceremony, partakes in Jesus' flesh. 
That's transubstantiation. The next view down, which took place uh, at the time of the Reformation, is what we call consubstantiation. This was uh, primarily in the Lutheran circle. So transubstantiation was generally Roman Catholic. Consubstantiation is generally Lutheran. The, the Lutheran faith tradition believes that the physical body of Jesus is omnipresent. And because of the unique spiritual nature of communion, when you partake of the bread and you partake of the fruit of the vine, Jesus is drawn into the observance so that as you partake in the bread, which is literal bread, it is not actually flesh, you are also spiritually consuming Jesus' flesh, that by consuming the bread, you are consuming Jesus' flesh in a spiritual way, and so you are still actually consuming Jesus' flesh, though not in the bread, just with the bread, if you want to say it that way, and with the, the, the cup, if you want to say it that way. So it's a spiritual reality that you are, in fact, that it is in the eating and the drinking during communion that you are actually consuming Jesus' flesh not not in the bread, but you are consuming his flesh and you are drinking his blood as you're partaking together. So it steps back one one step so that uh, so that we're not cannibals, but it um, still keeps the essence that this ceremony itself is the consuming of Jesus's flesh, is the drinking of his blood, and we'll see why that matters so much to them in a little bit. The third view which is not as popular, although it's maintaining or it's gaining in popularity as the Reformed movement gains popularity, is what we call the real presence. Real presence. This uh, idea, I don't even know if it's really a separate thing or if it's just among, you know, if it's just a kind of a thing. But whereas transubstantiation says that you're eating the body and the blood of Jesus, uh, uh, that, that you're actually eating the substance as you eat, um, the consubstantiation says you're actually eating bread and you're actually drinking wine or, or juice, grape juice, and yet you are, um, you are spiritually actually consuming Jesus as you do so with the motion itself. Real presence would state, uh, would actually be almost a response to what we believe more than a response to what the Lutherans and Catholics believe. Uh, real presence want, uh, believes that the idea of, of, a, of the Lord's Supper being a memorial and of being anticipatory, and being for communion, and of being of proclamation is not enough. They feel like that has actually caused it to lose some value. And, and we might understand why that is. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper have lost value in the church today. And it's a shame that that value has been lost. So, when they talk about the real presence, they would state that beyond a memorial or fellowship or anticipation or proclamation, that communion actually spiritually communes with the Lord in a deeply mystical way, nourishing the faith of the participant. That when we partake together, it is actually a, a spiritual booster for us. That it, it nourishes our faith in a mystical way and that by partaking, uh, this faith will be nourished and there will be a, tr a time of true and great and substantive spiritual effect in the church upon the body through the partaking together in communion. And in one sense, I don't have a problem with this. I don't see a problem with the idea that communion matters. That's, that's very that's true. I don't see a problem with the idea that communion strengthens our faith. I believe it does strengthen our faith. I don't have a problem with the idea of saying that, that there is, is spiritual impact. But I do have a problem with saying that it's actually in the action. 
I do have a problem saying that the spiritual impact of communion is actually in the action of partaking together rather than in the intent of the heart and the means by which we do it. In other words, there are many things that we do in the church and those things by default don't mean anything. They don't mean anything by default. We sing certain hymns and we, we have an order of things and we read our Bibles and we pray. None of those things in the doing mean anything. It's only in the manner in which we do them. Just as with hearing in Luke 8 when Jesus says, take heed how you hear. It's not enough just to hear. What matters is that we hear the, the right way, that we're listening, that we obey. And the one place that I would, the one question mark I would have in this is where we refocus the time of the, of the Lord's Supper, the spiritual benefit of the Lord's Supper you know, gets taken off of the heart with which we do it and the intent with which we do it, and it gets placed on the action that we are doing. And I feel like real presence still kind of falls into that a little bit, that we are going to do this together, and it's going to be important that we do this together, because if, if, if we don't do this, then we are missing out on, on something if we don't do this. Well, as we partake this evening in just a few moments in the Lord's table, some of us will be spiritually impacted while others may not be because of the heart with which you're doing it, folks. Some of us might be spiritually impacted and it might be a great boost to our faith as we remember the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the broken body in the New Testament in His blood. And that is going to take root in your soul and it's going to remind you that you need to become a better believer and it's going to remind you of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and then someone else is going to have a snack. Someone else is just going to partake and it's just going to be a thing that you do and it's just going to be religion and it's just going to be rote and there's no spiritual blessing for you. You, you did not get a blessing just because you, part, you, 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 you partake. It's the manner in which you do it. And we're actually going to see that as we get farther. It's the manner in which we do it that matters. And to that extent, I disagree with the idea of real presence. Now, if somebody listening has been taught real presence and they say, yeah, everything you just said, pastor, is right along with it, well, then I agree with you. Let's just call it the same thing. Let's call it communion. Okay? Because there's no distinction between what you believe and what we believe. But if we're going to give it another label and you're going to make it something different than what evangelicalism has, has focused on and fundamentalism has focused on for, for, for some time, then you better have a reason. If it's just because you feel like it's done wrong, well, we don't have to change what it is because it's being done wrong. Just because a, a person does religion wrong doesn't mean we have to throw out the religion and start over again. It's a big problem in our churches today, isn't it? That just because something is done wrong, people say, well, it's done wrong, therefore I'm going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. We don't have to do that. Let's just call it what it is. I'm going to call myself a Christian, even though most people that call themselves Christians aren't Christians. I'm going to partake in communion, even though what many people call communion isn't communion. I'm going to follow the Lord with believers' baptism, even though what many people call baptism isn't baptism. Let's just call it what it is, and let's just live truth. So then, of course, the fourth one, communion, fundamental evangelical. It's as we have presented it today. Now, there is an unfortunate side effect in the church that we have a tendency to allow these things because we see it as a, it's a memorial and these things, it has to be heart motive driven. 
the, the higher you get up this ladder, the, the more that these principles can be driven by guilt and by weight of the efficacy of their um, substance to say, if I don't do this, then I'm in trouble. I'm in real trouble. Whereas in our way of thinking, the memorial, and, and as we consider the fellowship and anticipation and proclamation, uh, somebody could say, okay, all of those things, and they could partake and it not mean anything to them. But isn't that kind of how the Christian life works? The, the manner in which you live your Christian life is only as good as the heart with which you live it. James said it this way in James 2, Show me thy faith without my works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Works without faith is nothing but legalism. Faith without works is dead being alone. What do we need? Faith plus works. We do it, but we don't do it to do it. We don't do it to check something off a list. We do it in faith. And the only uh, benefit to us is as we do it in faith. Because what does the Bible say? Hebrews 11.6 But without faith it is impossible to please Him. And so it's not that we are attempting to minimize the Lord's Supper by calling it a memorial and fellowship and anticipation and, and proclamation rather than having some sort of actual spiritual efficacy in the act itself. The spiritual effect is in the manner in which we perform it. It's, and it's the same with baptism. Because we do not preach or believe, because the Bible does not teach that we need baptism for salvation. Well, does that mean that we don't care about baptism? Absolutely not. But why should we give it more weight than what it has simply to try to manipulate people into giving it the, the weight that it's due? No. Baptism is important. And those that see that in faith are those that are going to benefit from it properly. And if you're just going to go through the motions, well then, it's not, good, it's not going to do anything for you anyway. Now, to this point, as I presented these, these other views, you might say, well, the strange thing is that there's nowhere that we've presented as far as communion, none of the passages we've taught on communion would lend themselves to any of these viewpoints other than, uh, Lord willing, the one that, that, that we hold to. So where do they get it from? Why is it there? And, and to answer that question, we go to John 6. John 6 is where the controversy comes from. Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees and declaring that he has been sent from God. He uses the picture of manna from heaven in John 6, which God gave to the nation of Israel while they were in Egypt, well, uh, well, they, when they had come out of Egypt, excuse me, and they were wandering in the wilderness, and God provided them manna every day. They would get out of their tent, the manna would be there, they'd gather what they need for the day. When the sun came up, it would melt as if it were the dew, it would melt with the dew, and then they would have what they'd have for the day, and at the end of the day, they'd finish it, they'd consume all that they had. If they left any for the next day, it would mold, and it would stink, and it would have worms in it, and they, it would be unusable, and so every day, they were dependent upon the Lord they'd wake up they'd come out of their tent they'd, they'd eat they'd get the manna from God and they'd eat based upon what God had given them for the day and Jesus uses this as an analogy for himself that Jesus he says is the true bread from heaven giving life to the world that as God sustained Israel uh, day by day in the wilderness so too Jesus sustains us day by day he's the true bread from God 
And Jesus makes it clear in these verses that he is sent from God. And of course, this upsets the Pharisees. They were upset because Jesus told them he could give them eternal life. They were upset because Jesus claimed to be the sustaining power of life in God. All of this is in the context of accepting him and accepting his message. And so we're going to pick up in John 6, beginning in verse 47. We'll, we'll read a chunk here this evening. We'll read through verse 66. Jesus says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, John 6, 47, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. I am that bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him." As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. These things that he, that, uh, said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This isn't hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not. And who should betray him, speaking of Judas Iscariot, who had never believed. He was never a believer. And he said, Therefore said I unto you, that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Jesus' words here caused many to be offended and to stop following after him because he said some things that were hard to receive. That if... One does not eat his flesh and drink his blood. They cannot have eternal life. But those who do eat his flesh and drink his blood will have eternal life and will be raised up on the last days. This is Jesus' message. And it is this interaction when combined with Jesus' statement at the Lord's Supper, this is my body, and this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which convinces these denominations, these observers, these readers, that this observance is the manner in which they partake of his body and blood. That to eat his flesh and drink his blood is to partake in communion. So why don't we believe this thing? Well, because this interpretation has many more problems and contradictions than it has solutions. Problem number one is the simple, practical, theological problem. Must I partake to be saved? And if I partake, am I then saved? When we come to seeming theological problems or contradictions in, in this church, we, we always fall back upon a principle which I call the least common denominator principle. When you're adding, subtracting fractions, you try to get those fractions to their least 
common denominator, and by bringing them to their least common denominator, it is quite easy, in fact, to perform uh, subtraction and addition on fractions. What I mean by this theologically is that we find the common thread of theological or doctrinal truth which spans every passage in which the topic is taught. And then we assume that this standard is the essence of the teaching and that anything and everything added to the teaching in one context that is not found in all of the other contexts is added not explicitly to teach a new revelation on a necessity, but rather because of the particular circumstance or the particular audience or, or group that's being spoken unto or a particular perspective which the speaker is attempting to uh, elicit. So Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 54, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So Jesus says in verse 56, He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. These terms are not unfamiliar to us. In fact, they are used all over the New Testament to speak of being saved. The idea of um, us dwelling in him and him in us. The idea of us being raised up on the last day and having eternal life. These are concepts that come only by being saved. Interestingly enough, however, none of these texts, these other texts that, say, that use these same terms, that use these terms eternal life and being raised up in the last day and dwelling in the Father and the Father in us, none of those other ones speak of communion. And this is curious. Because if I'm going to other passages of Scripture and they're teaching us how to be saved and they're talking about the gospel and we're finding the gospel in them, well, then is it an incomplete gospel? If we don't add, oh, by the way, you have to partake in communion or else you're not a believer. Because you have to consume his flesh and you have to consume his blood. And the way to do that is through communion. So in John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus tells Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So Jesus gives the standard in John 3 as belief. Well, yes, of course. Of course it's belief alone. But that, that means repentance, and that means communion, and that means baptism. Well, then we have a problem, because that's not what Jesus told Nicodemus on that day, which means Nicodemus was given an incomplete gospel by our Lord. Because Jesus said, believe on Him and you'll not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Okay, so now we need to believe, which means to partake in communion and to get baptized and to repent of your sin and to drink of a well of water that Jesus gives. Or was Jesus just using the particular element that was before him in order to make a spiritual point in a unique way that might resonate with the listener. And by the way, in John 6, Jesus isn't even speaking to a bunch of believers. He's weeding out who are believers and who are not by giving a hard saying. He's not trying to give the clarity of the gospel. He's trying to weed out those that will become offended, those that are not believers, those that would walk away. 
But what's most telling is, is the very context of John 6 itself. In John 6 itself, beginning in verse 27, Jesus says this, Labor not for meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. So Jesus is saying here, you need to work. Don't work for meat that perishes though, but work for eternal life. Work for the meat that endures unto everlasting life. Notice that this is the context that will later roll into Jesus saying, I am meat. My, my, my flesh is meat and my blood is drink. You are to labor to find that meat. And they say, well, what's the work of God? What is the labor that I have to do to find this meat? And what is Jesus' answer? What is the work that has to be done in order to receive eternal life? Believe on him whom he hath sent. There's our standard. I'm going to skip several verses here for the sake of time. Uh, skipping to John 6, 39. Read verses 39 and 40. Jesus says, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all that he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. Here we are. Have everlasting life, raise him up at the last day. And what does it say is the standard for everlasting life and raising him up on the last day? The standard is who's the one who sees the Son and believes on him. Who sees the Son and believes on him will have everlasting life and will be raised up in the last day. Unless we have any doubts about the context, do you remember the first verse that we jumped into right before Jesus said, eat my flesh and drink my blood? It was verse 47. Do you remember what it said? It said this, John 6, 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Within the very context itself, Jesus is saying, belief alone is all that it takes. And then he starts to give this very hard saying about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And many of, the, of, of those who had followed him stopped following him on that day because they were offended at his words because he said, it's the spirit that quickens and these words are spiritual, not physical. To this end, if I must partake in physical communion to be saved, I have a real problem. All throughout the New Testament, we see people receiving eternal life without partaking in communion. And if they then, having received eternal life, must then perform an external act to maintain eternal life, then when they get to heaven, they will have gotten there by their own efforts. And Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 is wrong. Because it is by works. And they'll have means by which to boast. And what about the other end? If I partake, am I saved? If I have not seen and believed on Christ, but I eat his flesh and drink his blood, am I saved? Is it enough, is it enough for somebody to sit every week in a church, consume a wafer, and drink some wine, and walk away believing that because they've done that, they'll go to heaven? Indeed, it is not. Second problem. First problem, um, I must partake to be saved, and then if I partake, will I be saved by default? Second problem. 
and this is this is a very very important point. There is no scriptural link between John six and communion. There's nothing biblically that links John six to the communion accounts. In fact, it should be quite telling that this account of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood in John 6 is found only in the Gospel of John. And it should be quite telling that the Gospel of John is the only Gospel that does not record the events that we call the Lord's Supper. It does not record the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples on the night in which he was betrayed. It's as if God did not want us to draw a link between John and Jesus is teaching in John 6 to unbelievers that, that was seeking to weed them out. And Jesus' most intimate fellowship among his believers that's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians 11. Paul does not reference John 6 and 1 Corinthians 11. When he was trying to correct the church on how to properly partake in this ceremony, he did not appeal to John 6. And so there is no time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or 1 Corinthians where this observance appeals to John 6 as the basis. This is what we call a synthetic link. It's a close enough parallel that we could say, yes, the link was valid, and if any one of the teachers had drawn a connection, if, if, if any authoritative teacher, Jesus or the apostles, had drawn a connection between the two, then it would not be a hard connection. It would not be a hard uh, leap for us to take because they're, they're very similar in character. But the link is not demanded by the text. All throughout Luke, we've been talking about parables and how we can see in parables certain lessons, but that we need to be careful that we're not causing those lessons to lose sight of the point, right? That just because there are, uh, there, there are, are similarities in language or there's similarities in ideas or there's similarities in imagery, this does not demand that there is an actual connection between the texts. And in John 6, we see something that is very similar. Jesus is using very similar language to what he's going to use when he institutes the Lord's Supper. However, he does ch ch change the language slightly but significantly. This do in remembrance of me. In fact, I would argue that it's much closer to an invalid link. Why? John 6, Jesus is calling upon these people to consume his flesh and drink his blood. But on the night of the, the Lord's table, notice the focus as we walk through the four places in our Bible where we see this talked about. Matthew 26, 28. Jesus says, For this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Mark 14, 24. He said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Luke 22, 20. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Have you noticed that in all four cases, Jesus' focus is not on his blood, but on the results of his blood. This is the New Testament or the New Covenant in my blood. It is about the New Covenant. It is playing back 
back to the first covenant that was made, not without blood, where Moses sprinkled upon the people and the covenant when they covenanted with God before Moses. It is hearkening back to the blood that covered the doorposts, uh, the side posts and the top posts of the houses when the Lord passed over them on that day. Jesus says there's now a new covenant and that new covenant is being instituted in my blood. And it's the new covenant that we're, remember we're, we're remembering. And the fact that he had to shed his blood in order to give the new covenant. It's not about us drinking his blood. This is not a John 6 idea. The idea is that we are remembering his blood and that's the blood of the new covenant. It's the same with the bread. We are not focused upon his flesh. It is not about his flesh. It is about his body being broken. It is about the breaking of his body. It is about him being torn and him being bruised. Yet Isaiah 53 says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That's what it's about. We're not doing it to be saved. We're doing it to remember what it took to save us. We're not doing it in order to remember his body and his blood. We're doing it in, in order to remember his broken body and the new covenant in his blood. That's what the text says. To this degree, I believe the link is invalid. It doesn't need to be made. Jesus doesn't make the link. Paul doesn't make the link. No one else speaks of it. So we have no precedence with which to make the link. It's a synthetic link. Now I regret that this time of error took so much of our time this evening. I, I never necessarily wanted to be so. But I've preached several messages on the Lord's Supper. I've, I've preached messages on, on, on these things and I've talked about why we believe what we believe and, and, and why we do what we do and why we don't do what we don't do. And, and I have, I've spoken of those things before, but I've never really spent some time telling us why we don't do what we don't do. And, and I felt like it was important this evening. For sake of time, I want to give you one application this evening, and it really is the one that I desire to draw out. It's the one that becomes most apparent in the Luke 22 passage, and it is this, that God longs for fellowship with you. God longs for fellowship with us. God wants a relationship with you. He wants you to dwell in Him, and He wants Himself to dwell in you. This reality, the desire with which Jesus desired to fellowship with his followers is intended to lead us toward a particular end. Fellowship always leads toward a particular end and that is maintenance. If we desire to fellowship with someone, then we are going to spend time with them and we are going to do right by them. And if we desire to fellowship with a holy God, it leads us unto purity. To whatever degree we are living in sin, Walking in sin, allowing the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life to overtake our understanding of what is right, to this degree we are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit and we are separating ourselves from fellowship with God, not unto a loss of salvation. The Bible does not teach we can lose our salvation. But we are separating ourselves. It is interesting, one of the verses that we regularly use when we give the gospel is Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have you ever noticed that that's in Romans 6? Not in Romans, say, 3, 4, or 5? In Romans 3, 4, and 5, Paul is talking about us falling short because of sin, about us living in condemnation, about Jesus Christ justifying us, being justified freely by His grace. We have peace with God. 
And then it rolls over in Romans 6 and it asks, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Paul is speaking to believers here and as he talks about them living like they are, as he talks about them living in the power of the Spirit because they've already been saved, that's when he warns for the wages of sin is death. But you've already received the gift of God. So don't live in the death that separates you. The wages of sin is separation from God. And even as a believer, if we are walking in sin, you're being separated in fellowship from your God. Thank God 1 John 1, 9 exists. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Communion as a memorial, as fellowship, as anticipation, as a proclamation is an opportunity for us to check ourselves. And while there's going to be a little overlap with fellowship here, I'm I'm giving you a fifth point, the purpose of communion, a fifth point, which is actually um, very close to the second point, fellowship, which is why it's kind of an overlapping point. I almost didn't put it in, but I need to put it in. I want to put it in. The fifth point of communion is examination. Memorial, fellowship, anticipation, proclamation, examination. As Paul continued in 1 Corinthians 11, he had just gave them what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. He had rebuked them because they were doing it wrong. And this is why it matters. In verses 27 to 32, we read this. Paul says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Now there's been many a pastor who, in light of these warnings, has warned that if you partake in in communion uh, with sin in your heart, that... Um, you are going to get sick and die. And that's not really what the Bible is saying here. Unworthily here is an adverb, not an adjective. It's not speaking of the worthiness of the person itself, but it's speaking of the worthiness in manner. Remember how we talked earlier about the fact that anybody can do anything, but the manner with which we do it actually is the spiritual effect? That as we come together in communion, it is the manner with which you come, it is the, the, the seriousness with which you come to it that will change you, that will make the difference in you. That as you approach this, uh, approach this observance, you approach it with, with reverence, with respect. The, the church of Corinth was approaching it with sin. They were approaching it with selfishness and gluttony and drunkenness. They were approaching it as a means by which to tear the church apart in disunity and for that God was punishing them. But as we approach the Lord's table and we approach it in care and we approach it in reverence and we do desire to fellowship with our Lord and and whether or not there is an explicit, obviously if there's something wrong, it ought to be dealt with anyway, right? The Lord's Supper should not be the time for us to confess our sins. We should be confessing our sins the moment we're convicted of our sin. We should be walking in daily rightness with God and with others and yet this ceremony is a reminder that we are to be unified. And that we ought to be partaking in a manner, the action in in a manner, in a heart that is worthy, in a manner that is worthy of our Lord, discerning the body and the blood of the Lord, discerning the sacrifice. He died to unify us. He died for our fellowship. He died to have fellowship with us. And we need to discern that. That is the spirit 
of our observance. It is a call to examine our motives. Are we in the faith? Are we walking in fellowship and obedience with the Lord and with one another? Are we unashamed of the gospel of Christ? Do we love the Lord's coming? Are we reverential in regard to Christ's sacrifice and His relationship and our relationship to it? If we would judge ourselves, we will not be judged of the Lord. And so Paul says, if you can't do this, just stay home and eat. God longs for fellowship with us. And this is what the Lord's table is all about. This is why we come together, in order that we might have fellowship one with another. It is a memorial. We do, we do this in remembrance of Him. It is fellowship. He longs to have that fellowship with us. It is as well anticipatory. I will not eat again until the kingdom. And it is a proclamation of the Lord's death. We do show the Lord's death till it comes, till He comes. And it ought to cause us to focus in heart and in mind upon the manner in which we partake, lest we partake in a manner that is unbefitting our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.